There's a battle going on today over the identity of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Giorgiatos. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. Well, good evening and welcome. So thanks so much for tuning in to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. So glad you've tuned in to join us this uh, Sunday evening. And you know, there's so much in the news every week in this campaign election cycle that the most difficult thing every week is deciding which stories to talk about. But I do want in this opening segment tonight in my Speak Up America segment to talk about a controversy that many of you have been reading about this past week that relates to the delegate process and the claims by uh, presidential candidate Donald Trump that he's somehow been cheated or shanghaied out of delegates, that he somehow has been cheated by the process. And these are extremely venomous and truly evil accusations, and they are completely unfounded. And I want to make sure as we talk about this, this this is not at this moment a, a conversation about whether people happen to prefer Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. This is about the idea that what the what the accusations are that Donald Trump is making are so baseless and they are so dangerous to America because what he is doing, Donald Trump is doing by claiming he's been tricked and that Ted Cruz has cheated. He's spreading lies that will hurt the GOP convention. It will hurt the GOP process. It will hurt the election process. And there is absolutely no basis for what he, what he is saying. Let me back up and explain why. I always try on the show to explain why these issues matter to you, the listener, why they matter to Americans. And I'm just going to run through right now why what Donald Trump is saying. He said in his Wall Street Journal um, editorial, which he could not possibly have written himself, but it's called Let Me Ask a America a question. I want to just explain a couple quick points. These are your talking points. I hope you can say when you hear people say, wow, something's really wrong here. Number one, the rules that every single state uses to process, to, to make their selection of who they're going to support and the GOP or the Democrat side, those rules are created in each state. Some states have caucuses like Iowa. Some have primaries like many other states do. States can change their minds. In fact, Kentucky, this most recent election cycle, had changed to a caucus because they wanted to try to help their favorite son, Rand Paul, and they're going to go back to a primary process the next time. So the states and not any candidate, not Ted Cruz, not any candidate, not the GOP, not the RNC, nobody forms these rules except for the state GOP party in every single state. Number two, Colorado changed its rules relating to this process in August of 2015. All of the rules about how delegates are selected how the delegates to the National Convention are selected have been available to every single candidate since August of 2015 and long before that. And what is really important to think about is what Donald Trump wrote in his Wall Street Journal editorial. He wrote that this has been that the rules were changed and the voters were deprived. Well, the rules were changed by the last year in August of 2015. 
and change to a caucus process where there's no direct presidential vote? The answer, and, and that has been known to everyone involved in the process who's bothered to read the rules. So if you're upset and you live in Colorado, the answer is get involved and have the GOP in Colorado change their rules back. Have them change to some other process. But nobody cheated Donald Trump out of anything. And this is interesting in this election cycle because Rush Limbaugh, who is you know usually just an icon of conservatism, has been, uh, to many people's view, quite favorable toward Donald Trump, giving him a great benefit of the doubt. Even Rush Limbaugh in his show this past week talked about the idea that what Donald Trump wrote about in the Wall Street Journal editorial was completely false. Even Rush Limbaugh had to acknowledge that Trump, you know, the voters were deprived. They they took away their vote. This happened last year. The next thing to mention is caucuses versus primaries are just a decision a state can make. A primary, everybody shows up on primary day and votes. A caucus is where the members of the party who are going to vote meet and they have a conversation. Most pundits will tell you, most serious political people will tell you that caucuses actually favor the outsider. They favor, they don't favor the establishment. In fact, it was Jeb Bush, the very establishment candidate who was arguing in Colorado that they needed to go back to a primary. He was arguing that he didn't like this this uh, caucus process that Colorado uses. And you know, I, I tell you this, why all this matters so much. This idea that somebody's being cheated stirs up anger in in the populace. In fact, you'll see Donald Trump is trying to stir up his supporters into believing a lie that his that he Donald Trump was cheated out of the delegates in Colorado. You know, you I could not agree more. If I lived in Colorado, I'd probably try to argue for the creation of a, a primary process or a different process. But the real reason this hurts is this. The the goal of every conservative in America Every Republican in this election cycle has to be to defeat Hillary Clinton in the fall. The damage being done to Ted Cruz by uh, in, in this campaign, the damage being done to Donald Trump, he's hurting himself by this whining and complaining about a process he knew perfectly well what the process was. He's hurting himself. And I'll tell you the last thing, this whole process, it has to do with the rule of law in America. We don't have a straight out democracy in America. Thank goodness we have a republic. And this is why what this process right now is frustrating is because the rules are being followed and Donald Trump didn't know what they were. This is Debbie George Aston. Ladies, can we talk? Come back after our break. You ignore the signs, so you enable. You don't want to alienate your child, so you enable. But if you think they're trying drugs, you shouldn't be afraid. You're the parent. So you are able. And we can help. So you are able. Get help at drugfree.org. Partnership for a Drug-Free America Texas Alliance. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Thanks so very, very much for tuning in. You know, one thing we do on Ladies Can We Talk, I, as my friends know, as my listeners know, I love words. I love funny words, or I just like to learn new words. And I, I play that uh, words with friends on my phone like way, way too much. I think I have over... Okay, I have over two dozen games going at once, and it's only with like four people. But hey, I love words. So one word, I wanted to, because we try to weave them into the show, but there's this word I found, and I it kind of tied into something we want to talk about. The word is rattled, and it's actually R-A-D-D-L-E-D, and it means being in a state of confusion 
or broken down or worn, but mainly being in a state of confusion. And the reason I wanted to talk about that tonight, which was because we were talking in the uh, just before the break about the kind of the great controversy going on concerning Senator Ted Cruz actually gaining delegates by using the process. And it wasn't just Colorado. I, I focused on Colorado in the first segment, but actually there are numerous states where even after a convention or after a caucus or a primary has occurred, you know, this is just the process of elections in America. And, and I think, you know, maybe people are tuning into it more for the first time, but the process of elections is, you know, you have the voters in most cases, go in a primary or caucus and then within each state those everyone involved in the process and the GOP side uh, has a convention and they elect delegates and those delegates then go to the national convention which is going to be in Cleveland in July and then even after that so Cleveland happens and that's where there's been all this controversy about what happens if no one gets to the majority uh, gets 1,237 votes what happens then but to finish I wanted to say so then you have the convention and then you have the national election in the fall between Hillary, apparently in the left, and whoever the the, uh, GOP ends up with. And even after that election, it's not over. After that, it goes to the Electoral College. And all of those protections along the way are part of a system that has developed for years. And on the Electoral College side, the reason that the Constitution requires the Electoral College to be the one to finally select the president is to ensure that people in all these different states have a say. Because if you just had straight out Democrat rule, then candidates would only campaign in big population areas. They basically campaign in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, I don't know, pick your big cities and get a majority of people and never have to talk to the rest of America, never have to bring their arguments to the small states. So the reason for many of these procedures is to be sure that lots of people are involved and that the candidates actually have to speak to a lot of voters. So back to Colorado and actually to a couple other states I want to mention, What's happened, even if they've already had their primary or their caucus, is that every state has a set of rules about, okay, so we had a vote, let's say, you know, Ted Cruz got 40% in some state. So the states will say, okay, well, then we have delegates, and the delegates from our state go up to the National GOP Convention, and they have in the first ballot, they are required, they're bound to vote for the candidate that they that won the majority, or they're, they're bound in percentage-wise to their state. But after the first ballot, if nobody wins... If there's no winner between Trump and Cruz after that first ballot, that's when they get to this idea we've been talking about, a brokered convention or at least a convention where they don't have a winner in the first ballot. And what's happening in states around the country is that delegates are being selected and the Ted Cruz campaign who knew the rules, has been working those delegate pools in states all around the country, trying to find people who say, okay, so even if you're committed to Donald Trump on the second vote, you know, would you be committed to me, Ted Cruz? So what's happening in these states is they're actually getting people to say, well, sure, you know, our state or I, I'm bound to Trump on the first thing, but I'll go ahead and um, get off with um, and, and vote for uh, Cruz in the second um, if I, you know, if, if we get there. And so what's happening to boil it down even more is persuasion. What's happening is voters looking at the where we are in this campaign cycle, what the polls are saying, who they really wanted. In a way, the process helps to distill who among the candidates has the most passionate supporters, who has the most 
knowledgeable supporters. And so what Ted Cruz is doing in many states is bringing his team to talk to various people in the state to say, are you with me? Would you would you back me? This is part of the whole election process. And now that Donald Trump is tuned into it very late, he's now all of a sudden going to wine and dine a bunch of the delegates in Nevada because he's realizing that he's been completely, he didn't, he, Donald Trump, didn't speak at the Colorado State Convention. He hasn't spoken at other state conventions where Ted Cruz has showed up. He's spoken. He's sold his story. He's explained why he's running. He's actually doing the real heart and soul of what campaigning is. He's selling his ideas, selling his message. This is what campaigning is supposed to be. So in addition to the fact that Donald Trump didn't get cheated out of anything, nobody cheated him, including Ted Cruz did not cheat him is the idea that you have to participate in the process all the way. And complaining that you didn't is kind of like, and I made various sports analogies, but, you know, it's like being on a football team and you didn't really know the rules. So, you know, you're running with the ball and you outran the defender, but you didn't cross the goal line. And so you say, hey, look, I won. I ran faster than the defender. But the rule is you got to pass, you got to get into the goal, into the end zone. You got to pass the goal line. If you don't do it, the touchdown doesn't count. And this is what the rules are. And you can make any analogy you want. The rules matter, and they matter how delegates are selected. I want to throw in one other thing. I want to turn and talk about taxes in just a moment. But the other thing that I don't hear enough people talking about, and I think it really does matter, is since, um, I believe it's since March 1st, really, uh, Ted Cruz has done very, very well in delegate count as compared with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is trying to, represented as well this is because i'm being cheated or some other thing but i gotta tell you i think there's a growing appreciation in more gop voters i'm not too sure donald trump has the temperament to be president i am not too sure he is our party's best choice and this is i will tell you is being borne out by some different polling um and i i just i think that when people look at this kind of stuff and they think about okay i got excited about him but now and i love what he said about immigration or love what he said about you know vetting islamic immigration or love what he said about a wall people got excited about donald trump but this is getting serious and i think more and more gop voters are getting serious and more thoughtful and saying you know what I'm just going to think about this. And, and, and so I think that Donald Trump is suffering from people actually getting to know him better. And I'll tell you, there was an interesting poll. Fox News had a poll that came out that said the question was, which presidential candidate has a temperament to serve effectively as president? So we had, and this is a, a poll of um, 1,021 voters in the last couple of days, the very recent. And so... Ted Cruz, 61% of GOP voters said Ted Cruz has the uh, temperament to effectively serve as president. Only 33% GOP voters said Trump does. So 61 to 33 GOP voters say Ted Cruz has a better temperament to serve as president as Donald Trump. And I think this is part of what's happening in this process. It's not just that Ted Cruz is actually following the rules. I think the deeper thing is I think there's a perhaps a growing recognition that despite the popularity Donald Trump has had in the early going on in this uh, primary, that people are getting concerned. Now, I know we've got New York coming up on Tuesday and New York 
um, is it? It is a uh, proportional. It's not winner take all. So Ted Cruz will get some delegates, and and Donald Trump will do very well in New York. He's a New Yorker. But I I just think I'm curious to watch how this all goes because as remaining uh, primaries and caucuses occur. Every campaign is looking to convince in the states where you can go proportional to get enough voters, both Trump and Cruz, to try and prevent the other from getting to the magic number of 1,237, which is the number you need to win on the first vote of the GOP. So I just think these things, these, these things matter to you. You might think all oh, this sounds like inside baseball, but really it's a, it's a system that the country has created to keep the power in the hands of the people. It's not just a bunch of politicians talking to the big city, uh, big cities and, and population centers is keeping the power in the hands of the people. And that's what really, really does matter. Well, you know, I was going to do a whole segment tonight on um, an a issue relating to taxes. And it wasn't to get into the substance of tax policy as much to tie tax policy into the difference between uh, conservatism of Republicans and Democrats and liberals. And so I only have a, a very short little amount of time here before our break. Oh, and after our break, we had a fabulous guest joining us. And this guest is a is a friend. And he also happens to be, um, his name is Dr. Merrill Matthews, Buddy Matthews. And he's going to talk about a financial issue that is a um, economics issue arising uh, in California. As they've now announced they're going to go for, um, they're going to go, go for a, um, uh, in minimum wage of $15 an hour. I think it is a huge minimum wage. Anyway, the only thing I want to say about taxes is this. Democrats propose tax policy with the ultimate goal of collecting more and more and more money out of the private sector. And in fact, Hillary Clinton has acknowledged that she will, her tax policies will increase uh, taxes by $1 trillion in the next 10 years. Bernie Sanders has admitted his tax policy will raise taxes by $18 trillion in the next 10 years, compared with Ted Cruz trying to put money back in the hands of the people. This is just a picture-perfect example of the difference in how the two parties think. So we're going to talk with Dr. Merrill Matthews, Buddy Matthews, after the break about California's impending wage uh, minimum wage increase and what that's going to mean to you. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. Every week on my show, Ladies Can We Talk, two women join me in our second hour roundtable to talk about the issues and events of the day. They are part of a small group called the Leading Ladies. Each leading lady is a leader in some way in her life, but we're not supermodels who read teleprompters for cable TV stations. We are wives and moms with families and lots of responsibilities, but we've all become deeply concerned about America's direction and are earnest students of today's political world. We love our country and our liberty. We want to inspire more people to join the cause of speaking up for America. We hope you'll join us every week. We try to sort out the political doublespeak and get to the heart of the issues to make connections between today's issues and events and the preservation of America's unique greatness and exceptional place in the world. We always talk truth about America. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. As I mentioned before our break, we have a guest joining us in this segment, Dr. Merrill Matthews, or as he's known among his friends, Buddy Matthews. Hi. How are you? Hello, sir. Hello. How 
are y'all? We're very well. So glad you joined us this evening. Okay, so Buddy Matthews, I want to take a moment to tell our listeners. Um, he is with the Institute for Policy Innovation. Um, he is a resident scholar there at IPI, which is an independent, nonprofit, public policy research organization based in Dallas. And uh, IPI.org is just an endlessly informative site to go to, website to go to, all sorts of good stuff all the time. But I wanted, I asked him to come on tonight to talk about an article that he'd written, which I, I like the title, um, which was the California governor's plan to create more jobs in Texas. And it relates to the California promising <laughs> to raise, uh, or at least the governor is behind raising the minimum wage in California um, up to $15 an hour. So how come you're, how come you're saying that'll drive jobs out? <laughs> Well, it, it's been one of the uh, one of the things that's happened for the past several years that jobs have been uh, leaving California to come to Texas. They've been going to some other states as well, but uh, <clears throat> Texas is one of the leading job attractors from California. Of course, we've got uh, Toyota moving here uh, in the Dallas area recently, and a study that was released from a consultant in California uh, not long ago uh, estimated that something like nine thousand uh, jobs. Uh, company headquarters or jobs had been transferred uh, from California to Texas over the past uh, five or six years. So it's, it's a huge, a massive influx of people coming from California to Texas. You know, I think it's so interesting, and now I've had this conversation, I think, with you on the show before, but it's just amazing to me that the liberal side of things gets to make the argument all the time that we care about poor people. And that's why we want to raise the minimum wage. We're going to rate in California's case, are going to supposedly raise it by the year 20, was it 2020 to $15 an hour. But the economic consequences, I mean, it seems like everybody knows them except the liberals who keep pushing them. Yes, they, they phased theirs in in, uh, in, uh, in 2022, so they've got a few years. Though, though New York has just passed one that phases it in by 2018, so they're trying to go California one better. But you're absolutely right. In fact, it's, it's kind of a joke there in California. I had to speak uh, to a group. I was asked to speak to a group in February. Uh, and and they had drivers pick you up, so I, somebody picked me up and was taking me to the hotel. And he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Dallas. He said, well, what are you doing coming to California? All of our people are moving here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the Texas Comptroller, this has been four or five year, years ago, but the Texas Comptroller mentioned that in if you want to rent a U-Haul, uh, it, it was very expensive to rent a U-Haul going from California to Texas. But if you were going from Texas to California, they'd just about give it to you because they had to get so many. <laughs> back there. <laughs> I, that is so funny. I do recall her, her saying that. It was Susan Combs said that, right? Yes, it, it, she, she did. And it, it, was, it was very funny, but that's exactly what's happening. They're, your point is they raise these minimum wages because they want to try to help people out. They end up costing jobs as people... Um, leave the uh, California and move someplace else because of the minimum wage, because of the regulations, because of the high taxes. So it's, it's not just the, the minimum wages. It's a high cost that's driven by those things and by the regulations. So it's driving people out of, uh, out of California. And my point is that, that Governor Abbott and Governor Perry have done a lot to try to create jobs in Texas, but nobody's done a better job of doing that than Jerry Brown. I, I love that point. And, you know, I really do want to kind of put a bow on this point for some of our listeners because I do think if you haven't ever studied economics and you just think that 
pay is about being nice or paying someone well enough to uh, live a certain way, they may not have thought through why it is that raising minimum wages uh, causes people, it, it really hurts low-income workers more than any, but that what flows through a workplace, once you force the lower pay, lowest paid people to be paid more than, honestly, more than they're worth to the business, but then if you could just do the little connect the dots, what happens in a business when that happens? What does an employer do to respond? Well, one of the things employers do is they they move to technology to try to offset the cost of it. And let's and let's be let's let's get all the cost. It's not just raising minimum wage because President Obama is requiring companies with twenty or more employees to provide health insurance. So if you had em, uh, employees who are making minimum wage, that's about seven twenty five an hour right now. Uh, twenty nine states actually have higher minimum wages than the federal minimum wage. But if you're making seven twenty five, that's about fifteen thousand dollars a year. If you're going up to um, if you're going up to uh, fifteen dollars an hour, which which is what California passed, you're up to over thirty thousand dollars a year. And then if you add three to four to five thousand dollars in addition for the uh, employee to have health insurance, it becomes what, what where an employer might have said, "I want to hire people. I want to have these people working here." At some point, the technology of being able to go to a kiosk or doing other things of that nature, so that they don't have the employee there, uh, just offsets those costs and those kiosks never ask for a raise. <laughs> that is, you know, this that kiosk, and they've been talking a lot about robots also, and how robots could begin replacing, you know, the fast food worker. You walk into McDonald's or whatever fast food place, and instead of talking to someone, you just push a few buttons. I, I mean, and that it just seems like this would occur to people who are pushing pushing for this fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage at fast food places. It's the same thing. And you know, one of the ironies that's happening here is that liberals have complained about offshoring. That is, uh, companies sending their jobs to. Uh, uh, other countries in order to be able to get cheaper labor and as 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 time progresses in those uh, those countries uh the new jobs come in uh, the, uh, the 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 economies begin to develop wages tend to rise that's happening in China right now and as a result it makes it less uh, it's less uh, beneficial to do that and that sort of brings the jobs back unless you as a state or as a city say well let's just raise our minimum wage again <laughs> yes <laughs> Like they can't learn that lesson. And this whole thing of catering to uh, a voting public who would like to have policies like raising minimum wage, it is just it's so self-defeating because you do get people who are economically ignorant saying, yeah, I'm for Jerry Brown. He's going to raise minimum wage. But, you know, I mean, the Jerry Browns of the world, I think a lot of elected Democrats, they actually know that this won't help. But it helps them keep their, their political power. I mean, they just, they, they don't ever connect the dots for people. Well, um, I want to turn also, I, I think I say in this article, but I, you know, this, all this talk about minimum wage can sound abstract, like, well, you know, uh, that you're just saying these economic benefits or, you know, down, poor, bad reactions could happen. But actually, it's already occurring in California. There was a, a garment maker, a, the biggest clothing maker in Los Angeles, American Apparel, is actually talking about outsourcing the making of some of their garments. And they've been there like 30 years. That's right. They have. They are. They are talking about that. About 500 jobs that could be wiped out, and and they are talking about outsourcing. And outsourcing means that you are keeping it within 
our country, you're just not in the same state. Offshoring is when you send it to another country. Uh, and they're talking about outsourcing, and that could cost uh, some 500 jobs, they're saying there. And, of course, when Toyota decided to move its headquarters to Texas, uh, there are thousands of jobs, and those are high-paying jobs coming to Texas. And, and Toyota tried to make the case, well, it wasn't just because of the regulations and other things going on and the taxes going on in California, but that was a big part of it. Oh, absolutely. And when you think about an economy like in Texas, you bring Toyota in. And so that it is not just that they have a bunch of employees who are now earning money in Texas and paying taxes, but all the services that surround the increase in population, all the additional stores and, and service providers. And it just, it, it, it multiplies itself to have a big business like Toyota come here. So it's not just the people. There is a multiplier effect. You know, about five years ago, I was at a conference of state legislators in San Diego, and Governor Perry was speaking there, and and they asked the Texans to speak up, to sit up toward the front, so I did, and there was a man sitting next to me, and I was sitting at the table next to the governor, but the man sitting next to me said, well, I've actually got a a meeting with the governor afterwards, and uh, he said, I've got a financial services company here in San Diego. I've got 250 employees, and I'm going to go talk to the governor about moving my company to Texas, he said, because I just, I cannot live. He didn't have minimum wage people, but he said, I can't live under the regulations and and, uh, the taxes that they're imposing upon me, so we're going to pack it up and move our people to Texas. Wow. You know, I love we're talking about this, and we're getting close to a break. I, I should have asked you, can you hold on during a break? Absolutely. Great. We are getting pretty close to it, but I like that story about uh, Governor Perry and uh, the former Texas governor and, and Governor Abbott uh, today is continuing his kind of policies because it's really realizing that business, uh, they're inviting business in. And I think and I, I, in this show, we always try to talk to women, women voters. And I like to be sure to connect the dots between when you bring businesses in, it, it's, it, this false dichotomy is, is talked about in politics where, you know, well, Republicans care about business and Democrats care about people but businesses are people and businesses employ people and businesses provide for a tax base that allows a person to thrive and it allows a state to thrive a lot i mean just all of it businesses are people and they actually are what employ people and so really if you care about especially the poorest among us and those seeking jobs you ought to be a rock solid you know conservative pro-business voter I, I, a few years ago, I was talking to the editor of Chief Executive Magazine, and I'll tell you when we get back. <laughs> okay, we're going to zip off to our break. We are talking with Dr. Mara Matthews, Buddy Matthews, of the Institute for Policy and Innovation. You'll come back after the break. And plus, we're going to hear about why he says tax avoidance is patriotic. Love it. Today, nearly half our nation's fighting forces are members of the Guard and Reserve. When they are called to active duty, they leave behind a family, a community, and a job. Employer support of the Guard and Reserve, a Department of Defense agency, honors and protects the bond between service members and their civilian employers. Whether serving our country or supporting those who do, we all serve. To learn more about ESGR, call 1-800-336-4590 or visit esgr.mil. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk? We still have in the line with us tonight Dr. Merrill Matthews, Buddy Matthews, who is a... um, Brilliant in many ways, a great speaker. He's also a resident scholar with the Institute for Policy Innovation, IPI, and they're an independent nonprofit public policy research organization based in Dallas. So we I 
told you, um, buddy, that I just love the title alone is fun, but the title of your one piece you wrote recently called Tax Avoidance is Patriotic. So take it away. Tell us why you say that. <laughs> well, the, President Obama is out uh, talking about what he terms economic patriotism. And uh, that's the term he's developed to try to say companies, uh, individuals, but really companies should be paying not what they owe in taxes, but what they could pay in taxes, the highest they could pay. Uh, and I argue that uh, of tax avoidance is actually patriotic. And, and this, isn't, this isn't new the, uh, from the IRS. I'm reading from the IRS now. The IRS says avoidance of tax is not a criminal offense. Taxpayers have the right to reduce, avoid, or minimize their taxes by legitimate means. Tax evasion, by contrast, that is illegal, and that's when you're hiding assets or not reporting income and other things. And the president seems to keep talking like people are are evading taxes, when uh, but he uses the term tax avoidance. And I, I argue that tax avoidance is exactly what we should do, first because... The Constitution limits the federal government to enumerated powers, and yet our federal government over the past 200 years has, con- has continually grown doing all kinds of things it has no power to do. And so by, by starving the beast, by not sending any more money than, to Washington than you have to, you actually help keep that, that uh, government smaller than it otherwise would be. Uh, you also impose, you sort of, by, by using these complications, the, the, what the president calls loopholes, all these tax things that are, our tax code is so complicated and difficult, uh, by relying on those, you're creating a lot of frustration in Washington to where there's actually some movement, uh, both from, from Republicans and even Democrats, to simplify the tax code, get us to a lower, flatter ta- uh, tax code without so many breaks. I would be for that. The president doesn't want to go low enough, but that's, you sort of create that kind of pressure. And then third, the president seems to think that by giving money to the government, you grow the economy because he gets to spend it, when in (laughs) fact the private sector is what grows the economy. So the less money you and I and your listeners give to Washington, and we use that money to save, invest, or spend, the more we're growing the economy. And, And the economy just simply has not grown very well under President Obama. I think that is just brilliant. You're, this again, I'll tell our listeners we're speaking to Dr. Buddy Matthews and what he just described at the piece he wrote, which is called "Tax Avoidance is Patriotic." I will put this up on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page and on our website. I urge you, if you haven't gone to the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page, go to the page, like it. We have lots of lively discussions. We even have liberals getting on, uh, on the. <laughs> chewing us out periodically um, and the ladies can we talk website I put a link up to this story I kind of liked your your uh, term will starve the beast we'll just simply not give the federal government any more money than we have to and also you make this reference to it's a tool for fighting big spending liberals if liberals had to live with less money in the government because we chose legal actions that cause us to not to owe as much tax as we might otherwise we're helping and it's like a political statement I love it it absolutely is. And, of course, just the fact that we aren't sending more money to Washington hasn't kept the liberals from spending more money. They are spending more money. But at some point, there's a sort of a pressure on the federal deficit and the federal debt. Those are two different things. And that pushes puts a little bit of pressure on them to keep spending under control. And they haven't done very well, but it does put some pressure on them. So I would argue that as little as you can pay in taxes legally, your listeners should 
pay as little as they possibly can and keep that money in your pocket, which is going out to other consumers or investing and not in the government's pocket. Because the president has proven he has no idea what to do with that money. He keeps giving it off to crony capitalists and putting it in places where they end up losing money or throwing it away. Absolutely. We could we could talk on and on at another time about all the ways in which this current administration has spent hard earned money, private citizens, hard earned money paid to the government in tax dollars for all sorts of boondoggles and especially in the environmental arena and the uh, solar energy, other energy arenas, just completely waste the taxpayers money. And, you know, really, I, I said in this previous segment before you came on that taxes are a moral issue. They're not really just economic issue. They're not really just money in your pocket. But they're a moral issue about the idea that people who work hard and achieve and succeed and are paid, you know, the the idea that the government takes it away from you, it should be for a right reason that has to do with what the government's purpose is and not just because they can think of ways to spend it if only you'll give it to them. Well, I I think that's right. And of course, if, if the government were limited as the Constitution limits it, it would be taking away very little money because it would have so few things that it would be able to spend it on. That sound, that is a great closing statement. Dr. Matthews, thanks so much. It was great talking with you. Buddy Matthews, IPI, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, Debbie. Okay, folks, I want to turn, we, this, we have a few more minutes in this segment, and I just want to um, mention a couple of things that, you know, I, I often say this segment is my cruise through the news, and um, I can't really cruise through many things in the news, but I did want to mention a couple quick stories, and I also want to take enough time before the end of this segment to introduce to you the idea, especially to our new listeners in Columbus, Georgia. Again, we're so happy to have a new station joining the Ladies Can We Talk family. What the leading ladies or what the group is I do in the second hour, because in this show, I always have first hour I'm on and I have guests and uh, second hour, we sometimes have guests, but I always have uh, my, I refer to them as leading ladies, but I have two ladies uh, join me each week. There's a group of six a total of, of them. And I've actually had some people asking recently, uh, people email about the show and say, well, who are these people? And I usually say their names, but I want to just tell you a little bit about more about them in just a moment. But before I turn to that, I just wanted to mention a couple and a cruise through the news um, subjects. I want to have a show soon focused a lot on education. And, you know, we had a show last week. We talked about... Uh, racial relations in America. And we had just the extremely uh, wonderful, wonderful guests. We had J.C. Watts, uh, who's a former U.S. congressman, African-American, Republican congressman. He's an author. He's a pastor. And he spoke very eloquently about race relations in America. Um, And then we also had on uh, a woman named Crystal Berger, who's written a book called Be Extraordinary. She's she's an African-American. She works for Fox. I actually know her through my Doing Fox. Fox News Radio. And so I really want the show to always be about healing solutions for America's challenges. And so we talked about race in that context. But I'm going to tie race and education together to say that there was a conference, and some of you may have read about it online, but this year is actually the 17th, 17th. So it means it had to start in like 1999, annual white privilege conference in philadelphia it's a conference on the this very very popular left-wing term white privilege and it focuses around teachers and education and this idea that teachers are going to conferences to get indoctrinated by very radical leftists to essentially 
criticize and demean and uh, denigrate the quality of the American culture and society and and take away learning and talking points about how they are to go back to their schools, their students, their classrooms, their schools, and teach about and try to heal or cure the alleged white privilege problem. And one particular thing I want to mention from this, there was a woman there who spoke at this. Her name is Heather Hackman, and she's actually, sadly, I'm sorry to report, she has a consulting group and works with teachers, and she actually talked about her title of her talk included critically addressing the corrosive effects of whiteness, whiteness, in teacher education and professional development. Among the things they critiqued in public schools that were examples of this white supremacy or white privilege had to do with things like demanding punctuality, punishing tardiness, requiring that homework be done. These were racist requirements that white teachers were imposing on students. And I'm serious, folks. Stop and think about that. You have teachers in schools, if they go to conferences like this, reinforcing the idea that the teacher is being racist and unfair if she points out you were tardy, if she points out your homework wasn't done. This, uh, this um, is a, I, I can barely tell you the level of evil I see in this and the level of evil as this is an American leftist idea that we're going to just slither like a snake into the American public school system, simply um, take down the goodness and greatness of America, teach students that white people are the problem. They're, they're bad people. That the only people we should be focused on or concerned about are people who are not white. And this conference, this is an actual, this isn't like raising cultural awareness and understanding different, you know, diversity and background differences and how you know, your family might come from a different country in the world than our family did. This is actual cynicism and hatred in invading the public schools and being taught to teachers who then in turn are talking and teaching their children in their classes about this. And this is, this is another example I'm going to get to, and then I want to introduce our leading ladies, but in the second hour, but this is one of the things that came out of this conference, the racial narrative of white, the, the, the word white is capitalized. The racial narrative of white tends to be like this rugged individual, honest, hardworking, disciplined, rigorous, successful. These are things she's pointing to as bad things about that are being taught about the American identity. Folks, this is the American identity for every single person of every race, ethnicity, skin color, national origin. This is the identity of America, the right ideas of America, the idea of rugged individualism, honest, hard work, discipline. This must be reinforced by conservatives. And this, this kind of white privilege stuff being taught in the public schools must be challenged by people like you and me. Okay, we're up, we're coming up on our break. I want to tell you in the second hour, I always have on two of my leading ladies. And tonight I happen to have Dorinda Randall and Chris Davis are here with me. I'll kind of tell you a little bit about these people. I always have two of them join me. I call them leading ladies. I use that term because they really are conservative leaders. They are speakers, writers, thinkers, activists. They're all unique and empowering examples of what conservative women should be today. Together, what we do, we decode political talk. So come back after our break. You now we can we can I'll tell you a little bit more about them. We scout out the political landscape. We embrace the power of informed women to shape the American political conversation. We talk truth about America. Come back after the break. Remember who we are. We are 
some on the American left claim they are standing up for women when they are really just selling failed liberal ideas. They do this because once they claim the pro-women banner, they can attack people who disagree with their political opinions as anti-women. The truth is, American women have formed countless new conservative political organizations. Here are a few. Ladies Can We Talk, Independent Women's Forum, Chicks on the Right, Smart Girl Politics, Claire Booth Loose Society, Politichicks, Susan B. Anthony List, Kitchen Cabinet, Voices of Conservative Women, Concerned Women of America, Eagle Forum. Millions of American women embrace conservative ideas because those ideas actually make life better for women. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Keep tuning in to Ladies Can We Talk every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. on 6.60 a.m. The Answer. We talk truth about America and about how the issues impact all Americans, including women. Time for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatos. More talking truth about America. Hey, welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a guest on with us this at the top of this second hour. First, I want to say my leading ladies tonight here are Chris Davis and Drinda Randall. And we have a uh, guest with us tonight, Charlotte Hayes. She's been on the show before. She is the Director of Cultural Programs at the Independent Women's Forum, and she's also the author of numerous books, including Lean Together. She's also very, uh, just uh, very accomplished, has been uh, appeared on many, many um, on PBS and C-SPAN, and she's really uh, quite a, an accomplished correspondent on behalf of Independent Women Independent Women's Forum. So I wanted to have you start, Charlotte. And first of all, hi. Hi. How are you? What a build up. I hope I can live up to it. I have no doubt. Um, but I would love to have you tell our listeners. I've certainly mentioned Independent Women's Forum before, but why don't you tell them a little bit about what what Independent Women's Forum is? Well, we are a conservative-leaning women's group. Uh, we're one of the main groups that debunks this, this phony idea that there's a, a war on women being raged by, waged by Republicans. We're very much in favor of the free market. We believe uh, in personal responsibility and independence. And we're a great group, and you can find us at IWF.org. We have a terrific, funny blog, sometimes funny, sometimes serious. Every day it's new. I love it. I will tell our listeners, you know, I often mention preparing for this show, there are so many stories and, and things going on in America. I only have two hours a week. So sometimes it's hard to decide what to hone down and talk about. But I always check your website every week because it is full of just kind of different stories. And they're just very logically argued but uh, and presented. And so I just really appreciate the um, substance and depth that's on your website. But the reason I wanted to have you on tonight was you had something up um, that I thought was just interesting in this year of Hillary running for president. <laughs> yeah. And the left trying to get women on board to vote Democrat. Um, you had up something talking about San Francisco's paid parental leave. They have a new required paid parental leave policy in San Francisco that goes to provide workers essentially to make up the difference. Um, I mean, it's, for, it's, it's mandated for employers to pay parental leave. So sounds like a great deal for women who have a baby. So how come you guys don't like it? 
Well, you know, it's it's going to benefit some people, and uh, but it's not going to benefit a lot of people. Look, San Francisco became the first uh, city in the nation to mandate that businesses provide fully paid leave for employees uh, following the birth of adoption or a child. Look, we hope that everybody can take off following the birth of or, or adoption of a child. California already offers a government system to provide workers with 55% of what they, they earn during six weeks of, of leave time. Now it will require the other uh, regular employers to make up the other 25 or more, uh, to make up the rest of that if they have 20 or more employees. Okay, that sounds great, but but uh, I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. It makes it h- h- more expensive to hire somebody. Um, it, it, so businesses are going to say, gee, you know, can I hire this person? They, they may, may take uh, six weeks off, and I can't afford to pay them. Look, if a business can afford to pay them, I think that's great, but not all businesses can afford to pay them. Maybe a lot of people in Silicon Valley can. Maybe Google yeah. can. But there are businesses that cannot afford this. So basically, uh, it's, it's going to keep businesses from hiring people uh, in order to make, make up for these benefits. I'm sure some people will lose their jobs, and it basically keeps businesses small. You know, we've got Obamacare that says if you employ more than 50 people, you have to have all these benefits. Now San Francisco has a law that says if you have 20 or more employees, you have to supply this. What that's going to do is keep businesses small because, look, you can't wave a magic wand and say to somebody, you've got to give somebody six weeks off. Uh, Jobs are real. Businesses have real needs, and some of them can't afford that. So it's it's going to lead to higher unemployment. And you know, Debbie, I can't I, I can't imagine why people don't see after all of these these sort of regulations and rules for the last seven years, we have a sluggish economy. This is hurting people. Absolutely, you know, I just love uh, often an independent women's forum blog on many subjects. You uh, and the other writers go to the point that really employers and employees are the best people to figure out a flexible plan that would work in your context. And so I think that's one of the reasons this kind of undermines the ability of employers, employees to work out these kind of situations. Well, yeah, absolutely. But it it hamstrings uh, both both sides. I mean, maybe... uh, I, 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 maybe I'm going to adopt a baby and I, or have a child and I don't want six weeks leave. What I really want is a raise. Uh, I'm not going to get it if I have the six, six weeks mandatory leave because, uh, you know, the, the employer's already, already spent the money on that. Let people decide on their own. I love that. And plus, I love it. We're getting close when we have to go off to a break. But I also just love the idea that it's part of the free market competition for employers to think, what's the smartest thing to do? What, what kind of employer do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind that, you know, just we, we make oodles of money, we can provide everything to everybody? And or, or do I want to be the kind? I mean, it, it allows employers to define their niche within their market, within their world. And then find out what kind of employees they get as a consequence of their policies. But this just kind of takes it all away. You know, we're going to, we do have to go off to a break. Uh, Charlotte, you can hold on during the break, right? Sure. Okay, great. When we come back, I want to talk about the Independent Women's Forum, Working for Women, the Modern Agenda for Improving Women's Lives. Another great project from Independent Women's Forum. Come back after our break. 
We're asking folks about marriage. Marriage makes me think of sports. You know, teamwork, dedication. Okay, let's see what people say. Let's say your marriage is a sport. What sport would it be? Basketball. Surfing. There have to be a team sport. A lot of back and forth. A lot of people watching. So how many people are influenced by your marriage? Hundreds. You really think about the ripple effect. It's like a wave. <laughs> <laughs> Want to improve your marriage? For ideas, go to foryourmarriage.org and message from the Catholic Church. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. We're talking tonight with Charlotte Hayes. I'm so glad we got her to join us tonight. She's with the Independent Women's Forum, so which is a great uh, website, iwf.org, full of great ideas and just great research. And you put you guys at IWF just put out the most amazing thing that I came across on your website very recently, and you're calling it Working for Women, A Modern Agenda for Improving Women's Lives. And why it's cool is because part of what conservatism uh, and all aspects of conservatism is we always try to say we need to find private sector ways to solve problems. We don't need to have every problem solved by a federal program, a federal mandate, a new tax, and or new, as we were just talking about before the break, a new mandate in San Francisco that they, the uh, employers now must pay a, um, a uh, parental leave for people when they have a baby or adopt a baby that they, they're required to pay it. It's just another meddling of the government in the market. But So this is just a brilliant idea. And I, I will remind you, Charlotte, I have in the second hour, my roundtable buddies, Chris and Dorinda here, we've all been pouring over this and <laughs> I think everybody has questions. Dorinda, I don't know if you had one first or do you want me to roll? Uh, I, I had one on social security, which is excellent, by the way. Um, it was, I am so sorry, I wasn't quite ready, but uh, I really like how you talk about already payroll taxes collected are not enough to cover the payments and that imbalance will become worse with each passing year. And it's really bizarre to me that we do see that this is the this is what's going on. We all know that it's there. How do you get the policymakers to listen to this brilliant plan that you have? Well, listen, if somebody doesn't listen to this plan or, or, or reform Social Security, we're not going to have Social Security. Right. You know, a lot of the, the uh, ideas of the left are based on this sort of uh, – Notion. I think they, they sort of believe that you can make some regulations and wave a magic wand, and presto, you can have anything you want. We just talked about a, uh, a San Francisco uh, mandated uh, paid leave. Well, ultimately, a lot of people are not going to have jobs because of that. So we've got to reform uh, Social Security. It's just absolutely essential. And, and, and we're not saying, you know, uh, that we're against Social Security. We're saying you got to reform it. And one of the ways you can do that is simply to, to raise the, the age at which people collect Social Security. Right. Uh, that, if, if, if you do that, you will, you will actually extend the life of Social Security for a long time. And really, do you think that people should uh, retire so early? I mean, we have, we have people who live on Social Security for, for like uh, 30 or 40 years, when it was instituted, the life expectancy was much, much lower than it is now. We need to adjust Social Security for the really good news that people live longer. Right. 
I love that point. You know, this um, this whole program, I will tell our listeners again, we're speaking with Charlotte Hayes of the Independent Women's Forum, and they are a brilliant think tank. Uh, y'all are based in Washington, right? We are based in Washington, but we have some, some fellows who are not in Washington. Okay, so anyway, this new thing they have is Working for Women, a Modern Agenda for Improving Women's Lives. And the one reason I really like it is because conservatives are always making the point that we have to um, try to stop government from running everything and making a new policy and issuing new regulations, but we need to be on the conservative side coming up with answers that address uh, challenges we face so that, that we have alternatives instead of just, because otherwise the left is saying, oh, we'll solve that. We'll tax it. We'll, you know, we'll control it. <laughs> yeah. They can always mm-hmm. find a government solution. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you, well, the one thing, working for women puts forward uh, some, some proposals that are common sense, such as reforming the tax code to reduce burdens on families. Uh, it's important to fix the tax code so that a, a, a family doesn't suffer a penalty, a married family, if, if both, both parties work. Currently, the, the second income is just taxed exorbitantly. Um, And we also, uh, look, parents need to work sometimes, and they know where they want to leave their kids in in, in daycare. They are the best people to evaluate what works for them. But currently, you have all of these really, really stringent daycare regulations that basically make it unaffordable. Let's reduce some of of these regulations. Let's let parents decide. Parents aren't going to take their kids to a daycare that they think, gee, you know, terrible things will happen to my kids kids here. Hey, Charlotte, this is Chris. And one thing I liked about your report is is basically you advocate for a strong economy that does give us that flexibility because it, it um, you know, makes more jobs available. One size does not fit all. And, you know, things like women, uh, may, women are different. Some compensation may be what drives them. Others, it may be flex time and being able to have time with their children. And the uh, the policies that your group advocates seem much more desirable in helping women be the women that they are. Well, yeah, and I'll tell you, a, a, a corner a cornerstone of what we advocate is people get to keep their own resources and more of what they earn. And and I mean, look. Uh, let, let me use this as, as an example. You know, we just talked about mandatory paid leave in San Francisco. Okay, we have a paid leave idea. It's called personal care accounts. Mm-hmm. Make it easier for people yeah. to save. But here's the problem. Some of IWF's proposals are rhetorically harder to sell than the ones Hillary Clinton and Bernie, Bernie Sanders advocate. They would work better for women and families, but, because, but they don't grab you like the offer of, of something for free. For example, it's a lot sexier to say, I'm going to waive my magic re- regulation wand, and your employer is going to have to give you six weeks off off. It, it, it's not as sexy to say we're going to figure out a way where you can, can save some money and, and have this. By the way, if you don't spend it by the time you end your career, you get it as an, it works like an IRA. But here's the other thing. Our program, Personal Care Accounts, it's not going to make it more expensive for employers to hire people. It's not going to, in effect, end jobs. Here's the thing about mandatory pay leave. Do you know what you have to have before you can have leave? A job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a basic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love, it's funny because we've all been reading this thing and what you pounced on the personal care accounts, that's exactly the one I wanted to say. But Charlotte, your point is really important. 
it is so much easier. What happens in politics all the time is so much easier to hear Bernie Sanders say, how about free college than to talk about what you have in play, what you guys have proposed in this fabulous document that was encouraging saving for education. I can't find it fast enough. Um, but encouraging people to save for um, education earlier in life, starting a saving, for, uh, encouraging saving for early and lifetime education. I mean, these are just, they're not as sexy, but man, they're, they're just more freedom supporting. Well, well yeah, we, we believe that you can make, make the choices. And I, I, hate to, I hate to be churlish, but I don't want, want Bernie to make free college because that'll mean I pay for college for people I don't even know and don't even know whether or not they're worthy of college education. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, Bernie loves spending other people's money. And, you know, the deal is the restrictions and the way they hand uh, or tie the hands of small business. I read in your article about, you know, what it costs per hour to right. to fulfill their regulations or what percentage, you know, how it's increased from 30.3% of per total employee to 31.5 of what businesses are having to spend to fulfill these regulations. That's money that could go back into the people's pockets. Yes, absolutely. This is such a great plan. This is Dorinda. And the one thing that I noticed with, we all noticed with the Republicans, well, with conservatives is that we like to explain to people, we respect people having a mind and that we think (laughs) that we can actually talk to them, tell us, tell them our points and actually explain why we feel the way we do. The problem is, is you're dealing with a society that types in 140 characters or less, and that's how they get their sound bites. And that title alone seems to be what motivates them to think that the Democrats are going to give them everything that they want. I mean, how do you guys get out there and sell this? Well, look, we, we, we just keep, it, keep selling it. We do things like this. I think we're making progress. Look, uh, Equal Pay Day was last week. It's Hillary's yeah. favorite uh, holiday, yeah. and it's built on misleading figures. They say that there's a 79-cent wage gap. Factor in women's choices, and it almost disappears. Now, uh, we have, have, have made a real inroad into this. Uh, one White House aide had to, an economic aide had to admit, I think last year, year before, that the figure is bogus. The American Association of University Women, which has put out a sort of misleading uh, document, but they, they put out a document several years ago that in the executive summary had the, had the wage gap at about 80 cents. But if you read into the whole document, uh, the wage gap became uh, six cents by the end when you factored all of these these choices in but they will not give up up this it's too valuable so we just have to keep opposing them and keep have have to saying it look we'll ha- we'll have uh pay equal pay day next year and they'll cite the same bogus figure we just have to fight it I love your message about keep on fighting. And I also like <laughs> IWF does, you do testify before Congress, right? You try to get these proposals before Yeah, yeah we're often invited to. Yeah, you know, we're getting we're getting up to our break. We're speaking time with Charlotte Hayes of the Independent Women's Forum. Charlotte, thank you for all your brilliance. Thank you for having me. Thank you for y'all's brilliance. Well, thank you. And I'll urge our listeners to go to the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. We'll post a link to this, what Independent Women's Forum is doing. It's wonderful. We're going to zip off to our break. and we come back, we're going to talk about North Carolina bathrooms, but it matters. Come back after the break. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver deliver 
opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights, energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit texaspolicy.com to learn more. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk? And we're in our second hour of our round table. Dorinda Randall and Chris Davis joining me. We just had a great interview with Charlotte Hayes. She's with the Independent Women's Forum. She's always fun to talk to. And I really do encourage you. You know, this show is all about encouraging Americans, men, women, everyone, to embrace the goodness, the greatness, the uniqueness of America, to understand and relearn why America is exceptional, and then to stand up for it. So Charlotte Hayes and the Independent Women's Forum are one of those groups, and there are many in this country, who are really trying to keep America on the path of liberty, of freedom, to not have a government grow and grow and control everything we do at all times, which is really where we're headed with the Democrat <laughs> Party today. So, great group. I encourage you to check out their website. But speaking of... Um, things that government just is incredible we're having to discuss these issues i want to talk about the north carolina situation briefly and then um and i know chris and drinder probably want to chime in but you may realize what's happened but in the state of north carolina the city of charlotte passed a law the city council passed a law essentially saying that anyone could use restrooms in businesses and in public the public restrooms um, of the gender with which they identify that day. I mean, they, and so this is all about this issue of alleged transgenderism, this idea that a person who is anatomically male should be permitted. Um, in fact, the law would mandate that you let that person use the bathroom of, of his choice. And so if he says, today I think I'm a woman, then allowed to do that. So the state of North Carolina stepped in and the legislature passed a law and the governor signed it, essentially saying, no, actually, in this state, you know, you need to use the bathroom that matches your gender, that matches your gender at birth or your your anatomy. Your plumbing. <laughs> your plumbing. Isn't it anti-science not to yeah. know that that's what that means? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, so the, so the governor has taken a great deal of, of, um, of mocking and, and criticism. And in fact, it's amazing because they've actually had a, the, the boss, Bruce Springsteen, a you know just famous, obviously legendary rock band guy, um, has said he will not, he canceled performances in North Carolina over this bathroom law. And I, I'm serious when I say this, this is not about same-sex marriage. This is not no. about whether a pastor must marry people of a same-sex marriage if, if his religion. This is about the privacy. I mean, the issue is 180 degrees on its head. Or, or am I missing something here? Well, you know, a lot of this stuff with um, the gender dysphoria is based on how people feel. I know one morning my husband said, well, I feel like the dog. Who's going to walk me today? <laughs> And, um, you know, how do you know if somebody is really transgender or not? Is it determined by how they feel? And then are we going to make laws in this country based on how people feel? Feelings change. Feelings are deceptive. Exactly. Great and, point. 
Yeah, and you were, Drina was talking earlier about who's really the problem. Well, and that's the thing is, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the restroom and a transgender person comes in, but that's not who we worry about in the restrooms. What I worry about in the restroom is a pedophile being in there when I have my child, or if my child decides to go in there alone. Am I supposed to allow that to happen and, and not have any uh, fear that he's going to be in danger? I don't understand why we're teaching our kids to say stranger danger but we're allowing this kind of stuff that you know a pedophile they're not always they're not always truthful believe it or not yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say that the truth is that people who are concerned about and and are trying to insist on you know use the bathroom that matches your gender they're not really they're not anti and in fact they probably are concerned about people who are experiencing the confusion of transgenderism but that's not what they're worried about. They're worried about the guy who walks into a restroom and says, I have the right to be here. Right. And he may be a pedophile. He may be a, you know, repeat serial rapist. He, he can be anything. But this law is the, the inanity of it. And just what's gotten so crazy about it is this law is it has been embraced by not just Bruce Springsteen. But businesses, I mean, businesses are taking the side of the people saying, yes, you must allow anyone to use any bathroom they want. PayPal was one. Right. Yeah. Yes. And isn't this basically the same thing that the people who uh, wouldn't bake cakes for for the weddings? You know, they it's the same thing. They were being, you know, harassed because they didn't want to uh, violate their feelings. And here that's what Springsteen's doing and PayPal. I love that I've been seeing on Facebook alternatives to PayPal, and you can go to a website that is called searchenginejournal.com and find 12 different alternatives. One of them called ProPay is affiliated with the Salvation Army. And so I think oh, wow. you could get warm fuzzies using a company like that. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. You know, this is a really interesting uh, contrast. And we, again, we always go back to what's so great about America. In America, it used to be that we had respect for religious freedom. So if a Christian couple owned a bakery or a photography shop or any other service normally affiliated with weddings, that couple could say, you know, we're not going to, we decline to participate in same-sex weddings, so we're not going to bake a cake. But this, the government comes down on those people now. I mean, they come down, they get fined, they lose their businesses, they have to go to re-education camps to be taught how they're supposed to accept same-sex marriage. So Christian faith is is just, you know, it not cannot be tolerated. But, you know, really what Bruce Springsteen is doing and PayPal is doing, it is how the free market should work. Yeah. I mean, Bruce Springsteen can say, okay, I'm not doing business in North Carolina. And other people can say, I'm going there every year in North Carolina vacation from now on because I want to support them. That's right. how it's supposed to work. Nobody in government is cracking down on Bruce Springsteen. I agree. And and I can I can check out ProPay and quit using PayPal because I don't agree with them. And that is that is what America's about, is about that freedom of conscience and uh, and the free markets. And they work. Well, the thing that is a bummer is, well, it's good for Bruce Springsteen. He's allowed to have an opinion and he's allowed to express it. If you have an opinion on the other side, though, you are a bigot homophobe and you have to go to the concentration camps. He's (laughs) he's he is the one that gets to to experience the American experience by having an opinion on and being able to express it. If you're on the other side, though, no. I know. And yet a related thing, I just think it's really and talk about trying to hold on to one of the goodness things about America. 
It is astonishing to me that a business like PayPal, that obviously relies on customers, right. they have gotten so much pressure from the LGBT community, who, who which has, in my view, inexplicably, inexplicably embraced the transgender thing. But anyway, the LGBT community pressures businesses, and it's easier for the businesses to just humor them than to say, you know what, we'll do business where we want. Because PayPal, by contrast, does businesses does business in countries, in Muslim-majority countries, where gays are executed. Right. Malaysia. Malaysia, they have a 20-year sentence if you are gay, and they have um, whippings that you get as well. And they opened up a headquarters out there. Yeah. I I mean, and so which gets to the point, which I take from that is PayPal is doing what they're doing to North Carolina, not because they actually have any personal feelings or the board members do it's just easier in america to succumb to the american left to the lgbt community than to fight them mm. lgbt lgbt say don't go to north carolina it's just easier but yet they could they, they go to you know saudi arabia where they've just announced they're going to begin executing gays again it's the ultimate in hypocrisy and in political correctness and you know it just reminds me that that to me we are in a period of of reaping. We are reaping what has been sown since the 60s and the 70s. And I'm reminded of the verse in Isaiah 520 that says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, because that's where we are in our country today. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I just think I, I go back to this, what America is supposed to be about. For one thing, we're supposed to be about actual freedom of religion Actual, not just freedom of worship, like where you choose to go to church on Sunday morning or Saturday, whenever you go. But I mean, it's actual living out your faith. And this has been, this is why these uh, bakery cases, these photographer cases matter so much. It's tearing away at a core tenet of America. It's saying, I know we used to be about religious freedom, but we're more willing to give into the pressure of the LGBT same-sex marriage advocates than we are to protect freedom of religion. And this is just, you know, I've heard Ted Cruz talk in this campaign cycle, running for president, about freedom of, reli- freedom of religion. And I think with some people, it kind of falls on deaf ears. They think, well, what are you talking about? We're allowed to go to church where we want. But these are the kinds of things he's talking about. Exactly. And you know, what's so amazing to me is that we're talking about a group that is such a small percentage right. of our population. Right. And yet, because of political correctness, because of, uh, you know, progressive liberal policies and, and, you know, and where they are in our news media today, um, we, we've got almost Gestapo tactics against the majority of Americans because of the way they think and the way they believe. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think on this, we're going to put on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page, someone wrote something called An Open Letter to Bruce Springsteen and His Band. And the reason I liked it was because it wasn't just angry ranting, but was raising some of these more substantive questions. What exactly is fair in this context? Why is it you think it's okay to do this? And why are, why, you know, anyway, it just raises lots of good questions, which I think you should be able to talk about, be ready to talk about. Um, so we're going to um, zip off to our break here. You know, we're going to come back. I really want to talk a bit about the GOP primary, Heidi Cruz, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump. There are those who dedicate themselves to a sense of honor, to a life of courage and a commitment to something greater than themselves. They have always defended this nation and each other. They still do. The few, the proud.
welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is our final segment. Every week this show just races by in two hours, and uh, this really bothers me, but I apparently <laughs> I can't do anything about it. Um, if we had two hours a day, I could handle it. But anyway, two hours in a week. And, you know, I just want to, this election season, on the one hand, I feel like we're just constantly talking about the election and the candidates to the point I'm getting kind of tired of them. But on the other hand, I think it really does matter to keep in mind um, a couple of things about this election cycle. One is that we're, you know, halfway through. This happens. I think this has been, this will go down in our history books as among the most unique of the election cycles. Um, I think in great part because there's so much depth of anger on the GOP side. And so there is just a great uh, wall or, or just great divide between the GOP in Washington and the, you know, the um, GOP primary voters. I mean, it's, not just Tea Party people and not just, you know, extreme conservatives. It's the average basic Republican who's just so upset with Washington and they want an outsider, which is why we have, after we had 17 candidates to start with, the two who are in contention are the outsiders who are still remaining in this race. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting to think it's uh, Ted Cruz who's served in the Senate. Okay, I've lost track. Two years or four years, whatever it is, two years. Anyway, he's been in the Senate, and so he's maybe a tiny, tiny bit of an insider, but not really. He's spent his time in the Senate fighting the um, GOP. And then you have Donald Trump, who's, you know, a clear outsider. But as we get closer to the election, I think people are starting to really listen more to what's being said, more to the tone. And one thing I've picked up on, I mentioned, I touched on it earlier, but I want to go back to it again. This idea that a lot of what Donald Trump has been saying in this most recent, uh, in this election cycle, there's a lot of stirring or agitation to anger. And I want to say, you know, when he talks about when, when all of us look at the protesters, the American left protesters getting after Trump and they have disrupted his events and they block highways. I mean, this is the kind of leftist mob that Ann Coulter wrote about in her book. She wrote a book that essentially talked about the American left is a mob and that the American left, the Democrats, get power by instilling anger in the voters. And they just have voters angry about I I get somebody else's money because I, I demand it. And they're told they don't have enough in life because someone else is keeping it from them. The left relies on anger. But in this election cycle, what's been so odd is that Donald Trump is inciting anger in his base of voters. It is, and I, there was a meme on Facebook. I didn't, I didn't get it teed up to play tonight, but it had a sequence of 15 different comments that Donald Trump had made that we're like so used to hearing him speak this way that we almost like we're desensitized to it. But there's been no president in American history that talks like this, but he's, he's getting people angry. And in this particular election cycle, we started talking about the top of the show, you know, two hours ago was clamoring and complaining about the delegate process and claiming he's been cheated when there's been, he hasn't been cheated at all. And certainly not by Ted Cruz. You know, Debbie, um, the, just a few short years ago that the Tea Party was born just this time of year at tax time. And, and that was born out of a righteous anger, I think, that people mm -hmm. finally got up off the sofa and started getting involved. And what they found out is that the political process and changing 
uh, what's going on in politics is a marathon race. It's not a sprint. And so you have to get involved at the grassroots. You have to learn about precinct meetings and about, uh, you know, state conventions and delegates and all of this. And then the RNC. And, you know, it was a different kind of anger than what we're seeing that you're talking about with Trump. And when you talk about Cruz being a little bit of an insider, I always think of Trump as a little bit of an insider, too, because More of all the than Cruz. well, because of all the establishment politics, po- politicians that he owns, that well, he's bought. And he owns Democrat um, politicians even more so than he did Republicans. And so I, I think of him as part of the problem that we seem we used to be fighting for fighting against. And now just because he's able to be crude and rude and to the point of um, going directly to the point of where people are mad, they're not really paying attention to the content of his character. They're only paying attention to the words that the guy is saying. And it's like, gosh, this seems so similar to the Obama presidency. (laughs) And I just don't get it. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, ladies, this, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's such an important thing to think about. So we have this process in place called government. So we don't have chaos. So we have a system. We don't have just anarchy. We have a system. We have a system that elects delegates and a system that elects a president. The system keeps order. So if you're a delegate, if you are a delegate from your state and you're at that national national convention in Cleveland in July and you're a GOP delegate and nobody makes it there, nobody gets to the magic number 1,237 and you see polls saying things. And there are very tough polls for these people to deal with because there's a poll out recently, a Rasmussen poll, saying that one-third of GOP primary voters will not vote in the general unless Trump is the nominee. There are similar polls saying that, I mean, it's a large percent, I don't have it in front of me, of people won't vote for Trump under any circumstances. So as a delegate, you know, you have to, I think you have the ethical obligation to take that into account, to say, because your job as a delegate, once you've done your duty and you voted in the first ballot for whoever it is, isn't your job to make sure the GOP wins and therefore to pick who you think is, who can do the best job winning for the GOP? Or what do you think their job is? You're really into all this delegate stuff, Chris. Well, you know, I was a delegate um, in 2012 in Tampa, a national delegate, as were you, Debbie. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> my impression was that there, there was a lot of stuff already decided. And, you know, we just got to say yay or nay. <laughs> and it was mostly <laughs> yay. But, um, but yeah, you know, now, we're in a time right now where people are really examining the process. I mean, I'm sure the people on the RNC have never f- been under such a microscope before. And another thing is we're dealing with an electorate that, you know, is really not up to speed. And even uh, Donald Trump thinks we're a democracy, but we're not. (laughs) We're a democratic republic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you talk about there's a majority, there's such a huge group that will never vote for Trump. And there's another group that says if he's not the one, they're not going to vote. So but I also look at the and it does panic me so somewhat. But the, the other thing that I am hopeful about is you also have that on the Democrat side. You have the, oh, big time. so many people that are like, if she gets in there with this super delegate hogwash, then I'm not going to vote for her. I'm I'm not going to vote at all. So, 
and and then there's other people that say they would never vote for Bernie Sanders Sanders in the uh, Democrat electric as well. So I think that also the thing is is that Cruz, if Cruz is the person, he has time to remind people as to why he is the better candidate for president and that they can't throw away their vote. That's what keeps me hopeful. Yeah, you know, on this this whole thing is so interesting. I uh, I think it's obvious to people, uh, my listeners, that I do, I really do support Ted Cruz because to me he has the combination of all the qualities and experience and values I believe in. I feel like I can feel, I can sense his heart. I know where his heart is. I think he's rock solid grounded in the Constitution and rock solid grounded in his Christian faith. And so even though I haven't heard him speak on a thousand issues, I kind of know what he stands for. But having said that, the bigger thing in this election cycle, the reason the Tea Party exists, the reason the conservative activism exists is because of how far left President Obama has taken this country. And Mm so much as I say, I, I think Cruz is the better choice. I also will say we have to have to stop Hillary Clinton. We cannot have another four more years of Obama in this country. So to me, whoever wins the nomination, all of this, never Trump, never Cruz, never Kasich. You got to get with the, to me, you got to get with the, the uh, Republican because we can't have Hillary. And that, and we've got it. That message has to come out from whoever doesn't win the nomination. You've got to have that coming from the person who doesn't win the nomination, the GOP. Debbie, for for years, grassroots conservative Republicans have been holding their nose and voting for the president. We can do it again. (laughs) We can. I will say, and that's another thing I was going to point out, and this is one of the things we talked about with Donald Trump before, but I think it's really important. Donald Trump continues to say to the public that it is the establishment that's against him. And, and, you know, it's true. The established Republicans are not in favor of him. But in this particular election cycle, why it's so odd is also the conservatives are equally against him. Donald Trump's core voting base is not conservatives. It is populists. It's crossover voters. It's never voted before. It's people who are, it's, I mean, it's some people who may call themselves conservatives, but the conservatives are just as concerned by his presidency, potential presidency, as the establishment is. And that's why I say, so, you know, the conservatives will be holding their nose uh, if, if it is Donald Trump, but they, they better do it. They better do it. We know we're actually almost out of time. I want to make sure and take the time to thank the sponsor for this show. Our show, Ladies Can We Talk, is sponsored by GC Works. And uh, if we didn't have the funding of GC Works, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Cannot thank them enough. I also want to encourage you, this uh, show, we're on once a week. We are uh, growing and we're excited about that. Um, and we encourage you to go to our website, ladieschemitalk.org. We have new fresh stuff up there every single day. We have new, um, we have our, our flow from the Facebook page. We have statements and comments and interviews. We, we really are all about inspiring people to re-embrace and relearn and re-embrace the exceptional identity of America. Politicians, parties, candidates left aside, the goal of this show is to re-inspire all of us to embrace the goodness of America because where we are right now in this country, what motivated me, Debbie Georgiatis, to write my book and do this show is to help people awaken to see why America is so great, so exceptional, and to recognize how far off track we are, how far off track the left has grabbed us. So tune in every week. 
please go to our website, our Facebook page. You can email me at ladieskimmytalk at gmail.com. Come back next time. We love talking to you. We've paid a price.